0: It would sound My name is Dr. Aaron Donaldson and you have found Dirt Maps, a tributary of the Real War Project, a podcast about the narrative, affective and production politics of war cinema. In today's episode, I talked to Dr. Scott Murphy about the music of Ken Burns' Vietnam War documentary, heroic structures in James Bond, 1917, and The Avengers, and the music of Sam Mendes. You can find more interviews and conversations about war movies at Real War Project. That's R E E L War Project. Wherever you find your podcasts, enjoy the show. Joining me now from Kansas is Scott Murphy. After considering future careers in electrical engineering, high school math teaching, and film music composing, Scott found his true calling that brought these disparate avocations together into the perfect vocation, professional music theorist. He has taught music theory at the University of Kansas, Go Jayhawks, since 2001, and is particularly passionate about understanding the music for the movies. He has published several journal articles and book chapters on the subject. He also joined me and Kate at the Alien Movie Project in episode 26 to talk about the major six major progressions relationship to outer space. And again in episode 89 to talk about the wrath of Khan, Holst, and hammer blows. Lock phasers on target and await my command. Phasers locked. Time's up. After. Here it comes. murphy thank you so much for taking more time to talk with me and welcome to the real war project
1: thank you so much thank you for having me
0: yeah it's good to have you back like we said before we hit record it feels like a thousand years ago i'm happy to see you're still writing about and interested in uh, music for movies it's great to talk to you yeah thank you thank you very much um the first question i like to ask everybody is just could you introduce yourself and your research to our audience yeah happy to do that so i am a music
1: theorist Uh, which means that I am a scientist of musical composition. That maybe is the best way to think of it. So trying to make sense of and generalize this human activity we call making music. Um, So while I like to make music myself, I also like to make theories about other people's made music. And so I, I, I suppose that's of my, my primary vocation. And so in terms of my research, uh, I, I like to focus on lots of things. So you mentioned music for the movies, uh, but also there are lots of different people making music, either alive now, like film composers, or maybe passed on. So we tend to spend some time with classical music. And so these composers from centuries past in continents across the, the ocean. Uh, so spend some time with people like Brahms and others. Um, but I also like spending time with popular music. Uh, as well as you know just just about anything that we might hear that we want to try to make sense of. Uh, so it's pretty broad, but I'm glad film music is part of it.
0: We talked about um, your content on the Alien Movie Project in um, one of the episodes for this new show that I'm doing. Uh, We recovered Star Wars. And so we revisited your conversation about the non-Holst at the end of Star Wars. My colleagues there really appreciated, And I continue to appreciate how you help us describe the way that, um, you know, we say Star Wars did not invent its culture. It inherited it. It has to draw from like prior conversations. And that's part of the way that music kind of comes to um, inform future generations even if we aren't familiar with like Gustav Holst. If we've seen the end of Star Wars, we definitely have heard a bit of it. Um, and now we're kind of trying to talk about some some similar content here. Uh, we brought you on to talk about the new series that um, PBS has done, um, the Vietnam War. Uh, and you said that you wanted to talk a little bit about what you described as pressing scales. Could you just quickly define that for non-music theory folks out there?
1: I'll do my best. Um, it's it's a fairly complex uh idea but uh, but i'll I'll, I'll try my best so first of all the the name comes from an australian scholar actually who was an ethnomusicologist a jazz pianist uh, and a music theorist so so jeff pressing was his name and he has since passed but we uh give this name uh for him because he kind of originated this idea primarily in jazz actually uh whereby you have these different kind of repositories of pitches Uh, And so if you look at a standard keyboard, you'll notice that it repeats at some point. We call that the octave. And so we typically think of scales as a certain set of pitches that you put within that octave. And so say the seven white notes or the five black notes for each octave are pretty familiar scales that we have in the Western tradition. But one of the wonderful things about uh, the music for uh, the Vietnam War is that they're using different combinations of notes that are less commonly uh, used in in the Western traditions. And so one way to think about what a pressing scale is, I'm going to try this analogy on you. So so let me know if it's it's falling flat. But since we're dealing with uh, kind of wartime topics, imagine if you've got a platoon who needs to cross kind of a pretty strong river. Well, let's say like a small river, maybe creek, um, moving pretty fast. And so they're kind of throwing sort of various uh, stones into the water to create some kind of walkway across. You could either say, throw in just a few rocks and then have to leap, right? From rock to rock, it's going to be a little more precarious. Um, but you could also throw in say more of them, uh, so that they're closer together and it's a little bit easier to traverse, especially if you got a, a big pack on with a lot of gear. So if you throw in just a very few stones, you might get something like, uh, you know. So this is Rebelli, you know, played on a trumpet. And there's really only three notes per the octave there. So you're, you're throwing in just kind of three notes that help you get across Uh, the water, but they're kind of far apart. And so it takes a little bit of acrobatics uh, to jump from note to note. Um, Mm -hmm. But if you put them closer together, then it's, uh, it's more easily traversed. But at the same time, if you imagine you have multiple parts going on at the same time, then I'm imagining say soldiers going back and forth across this makeshift bridge, right. Where now they have to kind of occupy some of the same spaces rather close together. And if you've got all that gear that creates some frictions and, Uh, So the thing about pressing scales is this, is that you want to put in as many stones as you can to make this uh, kind of bridge, this temporary bridge, as easily traversable as possible. But what you don't want to do is have three stones right next to one another. Because if you do, there's the chance that as different lines, these are like different people, Mm -hmm. different musical lines are occupying the space that... You may have a situation where, say, three different notes occupy those three adjacent stones, and it creates a lot of tension, Mm -hmm. a lot of friction. Mm -hmm. And so the really cool thing about pressing scales is that they are those scales that have as many notes as you possibly can cram in between the octave, in between the shores of our creek, but they do not have three in a row. Hmm. So they create this kind of compromise between well, we don't have to bugle, we don't have to kind of make these kind of acrobatic leaps, but at the same time as as, as multiple parts are moving through, then we're also not gonna have this friction that can be created through uh, multiple parts being right close together. And and, and in a music, that would sound like this. Right. Which is, I mean, that's great for horror. That's great for kind of high level. Thinking.
0: If you want people to feel bad, <laughs> <laughs> really
1: bad. But this is this is a notch down from that. And so, I mean, the Vietnam War. I mean, we're dealing with we are dealing with horrors to some degree. We are dealing with a lot of angst um, and a lot of raw kind of feelings. But you don't want to take it to that kind of extreme level. Mm-hmm. And so, the wonderful thing about uh, people who like these scales is that it gives you a chance to create a, a, a space, a kind of uh, musical landscape that you can kind of traverse, kind of work through, have multiple lines kind of working through. Um, and yet at the same time you you avoid that most you know pungent, that most discordant of sound. Um, and so particularly with addison's Ross, what they've kind of come across is that there are ways to do this that are relatively new there are ways to do this where it's very old you know i mean that's we've had that bridge for you know a couple of millennia you know so um, but especially with with jazz musicians say in the mid 20th century or classical european musicians at the turn of the 20th century they found ways to come up with you know It's a little different. It's not quite just the white notes of the scale, and so when we listen to a lot of spots in Burns's the Vietnam War documentary, we find Atticus and Ross using these different types of distributions of pitches that are not the the standard ones, but they still fulfill some of those same functions of give me those stepping stones, you know, across the octave, you know, kind of river. Um, and be sure not to have, you know, three that are right together, such that we'll, you know, we'll create that sort of uber tension that we kind of reserve for Halloween and Freddy Krueger and things.
0: Um, I was not super familiar with Atticus Ross's work until I started looking into it for the sake of this interview. I'm just looking at his IMDb right now, for those that don't know him. He's done Soul, uh, was the most recent one he did in 2020. Um, He apparently has worked with Dr. Dre. He did The Social Network. He's done quite a bit of stuff, including working with Nine Inch Nails and Trent Reznor, which is who he's working with on this soundtrack. I grew up listening to Nine Inch Nails and Trent Reznor. And one of the things I've always really liked about the music there is that There's definitely anger and horror and dissonant components. It it frequently does come in a kind of like chord form as opposed to really dissonant notes. It sounds, we'll talk more about this in a little bit. It frequently sounds um, just richer, you know? That description of all those little stones and trying to move them apart so that they're not bunched together. Like I can see that in my recollection of Reznor's music just in terms of how I've heard it. say that in the Vietnam War, they reserve a breach of these scales constraints for when the narrative reaches like a fever pitch. So we talk a lot about how the music is going to um, collaborate with the storytellers to raise and lower to tell the audience kind of how we're feeling. So what do you mean by um, breaching these scales? Can you kind of try to describe that? And what does that do?
1: Maybe one way to describe that is to kind of set up um, a kind of a, a control here. So so if you you know if you if you watch the documentary, um, you know they have this music that they reuse for the menus um, that you know plays like over the very uh, first episode. Uh, this this kind of sound. Um that word earlier to describe their music which is a fantastic word to describe it because they really don't need to do much more um i mean on the one hand they're providing this supporting role as you know music for the narrative but also the the musical canvas itself is the art rather than having to put something on top of it uh, you have this you know the, the canvas itself just the collection of pitches that that's really all they need what makes it interesting you know like like a good rothko it's not a standard canvas you know you're using a different color that tells you hey this is something new but at the same time it's not the standard figure ground kind of you know here's the canvas that you're not paying attention to and here's attention to and here's something on top that you are um, and so they can kind of create this, this ambient sound simply by finding a, a different sort of distribution of these pitches of these stones. So what makes for the the breach is when they come up with a combination where you do have three stones in a row. Um, and so that happens a couple times in the documentary, at least to my ear. So there's one time, so you got like this pitch down below, and then you'll get that kind of sound. Yeah, I mean, you can probably already tell it has upped the ante. You know, it's like wow, yeah, this is even more. Um, because if I were to kind of pack all those notes within the octave, let me see, you see, you get this, and so, yeah, and so, it's, so it, it it kind of cranks the scale to eleven. It's one louder, isn't it? In a way that really matches what's going on in the the narrative when you get to these spots where. Uh, things well, the, the narrative is really turning up to eleven. So, like early on in the documentary, they're talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, and so during that, can, you know, you know, fevered pitch moment in history, uh, that's when they use this kind of, you know, you know, three stones together. Uh, and then later on, uh, they also use it for for Nixon uh, and and the Plumbers and all of that illegal activity. Uh, so they kind of seem to reserve it for these like, pivotal um, moments in history uh, where we were on the brink of something really terrible. Um, and so so in the context of so much of the rest of the soundtrack using these pressing scales where they would avoid what, what in my business, we would call consecutive semitones, but what we've been saying, like these three stones in a row, um, Then it's even more effective um, when they actually. Then put the stones in a row and you get that higher level dissonance
0: with the metaphor It's like everybody's moving together and you can kind of see all the streams crossing And then all of a sudden two stones come together and you can see the tangle You can visibly see where everybody now is kind of standing together and trying to then it just creates a lot of precarity You can really hear it. I really appreciate that explanation when I I talk about music um, with my students, you know You know, I'm not a music theorist. I study communication, but I talk about how you can put a melody on top of just the kind of background sounds the chords and things like that John Williams for me is the classic example like his Superman theme sounds like it is saying Superman it's Superman like there's your melody right it's very like on the nose he does the same thing with Star Wars I always hear Bill Murray singing (laughs) Nick Winters show
1: and I do the entertaining, thank you. Let's go out with something really hot for these folks. A big hit out of 77. (laughs) Ah, Star
0: Wars, (laughs) nothing but Star Wars. Give me the Star Wars. The melody just carries it. Trent Reznor just, he does that in some of his music for sure, but that's typically not what he does. And for soundtracks, it works really well because they're little cues, they're little sonic moments that kind of cue you in. Um, And I did, I said, I described Trent Reznor's music as spacious or as ambient. People will frequently call it percussive in an interesting way. It's not really hitting you over the head so much as it is just, um, you know, being moved by a beat. Uh, He uses lots of sounds for rhythms and layering and tones. Do you have any thoughts on his compositional catalog in particular or his work in this series in particular?
1: Yeah, so you mentioned some of the uh, earlier films that they'd worked on. Um, one you didn't mention that I really enjoyed was Bird Box, this Netflix film uh, with Sandra Bullock. don't take my children. Again, one of these you know, very tense, you know, horror thriller kind of
0: films. Please don't take my
1: children! And it's a, that same thing that there's not a lot of activity. They're not calling attention to themselves like the good John Williams theme does. Announcing, you know, a character or just the, the genre.
0: Listen to me. We are going on the trip now. It's going to be rough. I say John Williams punches you in the face. how he calls attention yeah, to yeah, it's like
1: psh. Preferably with a trumpet <laughs> on a high B flat. Yeah. <laughs> but their way to kind of just craft music that, you know, back to kind of the canvas analogy, that on the one hand, it's it's unobtrusive. It's not calling attention to itself. But at the same time, once it catches your ear, your eye, um, there's, there, there is something being communicated. There is this either like, like attempt at placidity, or maybe this attempt to kind of perturb and get under your skin. I mean, the wonderful thing about these pressing scales, they come in so many different musical shades. You know, back to the kind of the, the Rothko analogy, I mean, the, like the, you know, the Rothko down in Houston in the chapel, you know, it's this, it's kind of purple, it's hard to describe, right? But if you can imagine so many different shades of that same effect, where it's not just you know, the, the wider eggshell canvas. Instead, it's a kind of hue that you know communicates something. Uh, but at the same time, it it flies under your radar in some ways. And so it's able to really, I mean, literally get under your skin in ways um, and still be very uh, sort of efficacious in, in, in a way that John Williams is not doing with these very kind of extroverted teams.
0: Yeah, it's just a really great explanation. I appreciate that. Um, We're going to change gears just a little bit now. We had a great conversation on our show about the music of Sam Mendes. Um, We did that when we were talking about the movie Jarhead. Uh, We have not watched 1917 yet, but um, in our email collaboration beforehand, you said that in 1917, during the most famous scene, and it is a truly famous scene at this point, uh, the music we are listening to, you say, is redolent of a certain musical brand of heroism whose precedents stretch from... From a 19th century symphonic poem uh, through early movie serials up to post 2000, Marvel, DC, James Bond, including Mendy's own 007 score. Can you tell us a little bit more about this symphonic poem and how it works across so many contexts?
1: I actually don't know if I can tell you a little more. I can tell you a lot more.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. Oh, boy.
1: Uh, because there, there, there's so much to it, but I, 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 can, I can try to, to summarize as best I can. Um, well, first of all, let me kind of try to highlight the scene and so I'll, I'll play it on the piano, but you can, you can pull it up, you'll find it, but it it's it's at, the, it's at the very end actually of this you know this harrowing run that our protagonist takes, which is kind of cutting perpendicular against then all of these troops streaming out of the trench. Um, and it's it's so powerful. And so Newman writes actually music that's not terribly complicated. It's, it's very uh, kind of uh, noble in its orchestration. Um, it's slow moving. And so there's this sense that it's more of anticipatory. Uh, so I, I try to play a little bit right toward the end. of music and it's fairly simple you know I mean the fact that I can sit down and just play it means you know that the chords are actually fairly straightforward um, but Newman is tapping into something here there's this deep well <laughs> that has been filled up for over a century associating um, a triadic sort of succession here with heroism in particular and so when we talked before about Outer space. Uh, we we learned that there was also a, a, a succession of triads that was often associated with outer space, uh, kind of depictions of you know celestial objects or whatever it was. Here we have, in particular, so if that's our tonic, um, that sound, that sound. Um, so you're getting it. Newman's kind of uh, sort of refracting it a bit. He kind of passes it through like a musical kaleidoscope. Yeah. And so it's not as transparent, but it's definitely there. And you know that Newman's right. kind of channeling it. Right. Um, so yeah. that, that progression, um, or if you were to kind of change the bass so each of those chords are even more consonant, that has been associated with heroism for a long time. And so there is a symphonic poem by Franz Liszt, who was an early romantic composer from the 19th century. Um, and the, the poem's called Les Préludes, uh, this French title. And it's based on a poem. And so the, this you know, symphonic poem is kind of a, a poem or a narrative expressed in music, which is kind of a new idea in the 19th century. And it is, it's, it's based on this poem, um, kind of rather loosely, but uh, there's one spot kind of toward the end of the the poem or the preface of the poem maybe. Um, and then the very end of the entire symphonic poem, where the, in fact, I pulled up the line here, the line goes like this, it says, when the trumpet sounds the alarm, he, kind of referring to a soldier, he hastens to the dangerous post, whatever the war may be, which calls him to its ranks. In order at last to recover in the combat full consciousness of himself and entire possession of his energy. And the, the the music you get, it's actually in the same key as Newman's 1917 moment. Um, and I don't know if I can do it justice because it's a lot bigger. Uh I wonder if I got- big brass, big everything, but then right after that we get this It's the same exact progression that we had in 1917. (laughs) Which which is pretty cool. Um, But also, if we kind of sort of wind things forward in history, we find that that progression in general, and that tone poem in particular, that symphonic poem in particular, becomes increasingly associated with uh, heroism. And so this particular symphonic poem uh, was used as, you know, kind of not tempting, but pre-existing Uh, kind of background music for a couple really important uh, heroic uh, series from the first half of the 20th century, which is uh, Flash Gordon. Uh, Kind of the set, these movie serials that came out in the late thirties and forties and which were heavily kind of inspirational to George Lucas, right? Because he was hoping to make a a Flash Gordon music, but couldn't get the right. So he made Star Wars instead. Um, So, Mm -hmm. so we find this particular tone poem actually being Incorporated, actually re-recorded for uh, Flash Gordon to be used uh, for their opening credits, and then for the cliffhanger at the very end, which is just fantastic. Um, yeah, it yeah. also gets used um, as cliffhanger music in the Lone Ranger radio series. And so when we think of the Lone Ranger, we think huh. of William Tell Overture. I mean, that's the most famous bit of classical music that's associated right. with the William Tell. That's played over the opening while the narrator's introducing, and then we start our radio drama. But the original radio series was divided mm-hmm. into two parts. And so we had this sort of, on tracked music um, that kind of provided this you know kind of uh, connection between the cliffhanger end of the first part shoot, shoot, dog. Get in the way. Shoot. and the music they played over was the very end of the let's next exciting things, and it featured this exact progression <laughs> If we fast forward, then, um, you know, really the most recent movie serial has been all of these superhero films. Um, much like, you know, Flash Gordon, where you go back to the theater every week to see the next episode. It's so similar. It's
0: so similar. It's except one hundred and thirty <laughs> right. million dollars a pop. effects have gotten a little better.
1: <laughs>
0: a little better. Oh, oh yeah.
1: But uh, yeah. So if you listen to um, Alan Silvestri's main theme. And we first hear this um, in the the Avengers, and then it, you know, you just hear it time and time again. Uh, so um, it's using the same progression. It's in a different key. It's just been shifted up, yeah. but you're getting that same. It's it's still the same. Um, so it shouldn't surprise us that. Um, Newman is tapping into that, um, and also there's the wonderful Mendes connection. That, you know, we've had, you know, the 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 main. Um... So we've had, you know, the James Bond theme since John Barry and and the and the '60s and all that. But what's curious is that um... that kind of chromatic motion. It was, I would say, if you trace it back, David Arnold started to do this a little bit in the late sort of Brosnan films. But then when, especially when Daniel Craig came on, the idea was to take that chromatic line and re-harmonize it. In such a way that it has that same heroic progression. No one had really done that before David Arnold and he did it just a little bit, but when you get to Spectre, so Spectre is now Tommy Newman coming in uh, and scoring his first Bond film, you definitely get it. And it starts becoming more of a feature of the title songs. Adele's song has this very clearly in Skyfall. So, so, you know, and then the whole arc kind of completes with uh, with 1917, that humans been putting it into this, this, this war environment. Um, but, you know, it's, it, it's tapping into that same kind of emotional, uh, dramatic well that's been filling up for a long time.
0: It's so interesting what brought uh, you to our attention is your just wonderful little videos that you've got there on YouTube, how to imitate a whole lot of Hollywood film music and four easy steps. You got a whole series on these, the major sixth major it says is outer space. The major second major is protagonism. The minor fifth major is wonder and transcendence. And here we have another kind of like, you know, kind of shape that you're saying. And when you play them all side by side like that, I can, I hear it, you know, I definitely hear it, but I don't know that I would have picked it up, you know, like, I heard the hammer blows when I heard Wrath of Khan, and they were talking, and the dun-dun-dun-dun was going in my mind. I'm like, that's aliens. Like, that sounds like aliens. And that was the only reason I caught that. Is that kind of how this happens with you? Does it just like stick out to you when you see it or do you kind of find it in one place and then go hunting and, and that's what makes all the connections.
1: Wow, that's a, that's a great question. You know, the Flash Gordon, the Lone Ranger, um, that I think was mostly by luck. Um, so I think I was looking at a Flash Gordon because mm-hmm. I knew it was an important precedent for Lucas. Uh, and so going back and, you know, and seeing, you know, like the, the screen wipes and the, the crawl of the credits at the very beginning, I mean, <laughs> so important. And it's like, well, are, you know, are there any musical connections? Because we know that Williams took from so many other sort of classical works, but would there be anything that maybe he drew from, from the kind of visual cinematic source material that Lucas was interested in? Because, you know, the Holst, Elgar, Stravinsky, all of those things, you know, that's, that's not in the Flash Gordon series, as far as I know. So, so that's what kind of led me there. I'm like, whoa, there it is. Um, Lone Ranger I can't even recall how that came about but in general kind of hearing these things I think part of it is that yeah you I mean if you live with music for a while you start to just speak and hear its language yeah I think that's part of it. And so when you are kind of immersed in it, you know, just like any language, uh, it becomes something that you're just more attuned to, sometimes to a detriment. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, I, I don't actually remember song lyrics very well, and I think part of that is is that I'm actually hearing two languages quote unquote, spoken at the same time. I'm actually hearing chords and melodies. As if that is a language being spoken to me and I'm processing. And oh, actually, someone is delivering, you know, English or German or some other kind of right. actual <laughs> language. And so I think for me, it's it's just it's an affinity, it's also an immersion and just you know, training over time that um you know, I, I'm able to pick up on these things, even when like a Tommy Newman can take them and skew them enough that they become less transparent or conspicuous to most, but I think he's still tapping into it just in and Tommy Newman is just brilliant at this he he has this way of giving you that association but kind of passed through a filter or kind of varied in such a way that he adds his own and twist to
0: it yeah, I really love the you know the the emphasis on like learning a language and becoming immersed in a language like you know in communication, we talk a lot about how how it does not necessarily have to be linguistic. Burke calls communication the dancing of an attitude, oh. and that sounds pretty musical to me um you know it's like it's you know we 're kind of trying to um create statements and that 's going to create grammar, and that means that you ought to be able to translate what's what 's going on and and kind of reverse engineer it. We, I mentioned this briefly, and you may not have a lot on it, but when we talked about Newman, we were watching the movie Jarhead, and I'm not sure if you're very familiar with that movie. Um, I've, I've seen it. Okay, old, yeah. it's very bizarre because it, it is a war movie that doesn't give you any of the things that a war movie is supposed to give you. And the music, it feels like one of the things that we read, it feels like it's it's winking. The music is heroic, but it is happening like when they're getting off Goodbye an airplane now. in a Goodbye desert. Now. You get it? It's like it's it, it, it we'll works in a Tony, way that is still Goodbye epic. Now. And I yeah, asked Charles in the could yeah, you yeah. lift weights to this? And he says, yeah, I can lift Dang. weights to this. But when you watch it in the movie, they're, that's not at all what they're doing. You get it? It's just really bizarre. And so it's it's kind of a fun way. You know, we said that in 1917, he's not winking. It's noble. It's like, this is what they're doing. You get it? And we said in American Beauty, there's like a, a kind of weird mix of the two that brings people to kind of you know, disagreeing conclusions. Some people think the love is real and other people think the music is telling you, like, how horrifying (laughs) could you be? Like, Do you have any thoughts on just, like, Newman's work in terms of, like, that winking component that we've said? Do you think that's Newman or is it more like the editors? I don't know. What are your thoughts? Oh, I think in large part it's Newman.
1: I find his ability to. I mean, the thing about Thomas Newman is that he sounds like Thomas Newton. Um, and so, you know, whether it's, you know, just kind of using these very certain, that kind of piano sound, you know, certain intervals, you know, tell you that, you know, it's, it, it has a wonderful sort of fingerprint like aspect to it. Uh, but mm-hmm. at the same time, I think he is so uh, understanding and educated in all of these different. You know kind of cinematic sort of jukebox aspects you know he knows the buttons that one would press in order to make something happen and so what i love about him is how he can um he can press the button but you know what comes out of the jukebox has his take on it you know his particular twist And in so doing, he, he just, he's just adding, he's just adding layers of meaning of nuance of connotation to what could have been, you know, a fairly kind of cliched, uh, communication of some, you know, sort of basic affect or experience. Um, and he's just, and that for me is just kind of just sheer musicianship, you know, that ability to add and embellish, um, and, and and Tommy Newman has got that in spades, without a doubt. Mm. Um, and the, and the, his ability then to be able to do that for different types of films, you know, which is another usually um, yeah. spoken of as one of the true, you know, great virtues of any film composer is that like immense adaptability, you know, to various genres, various directors, various types of scenes and whatnot. And and, and Newman, you know, it, it has 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 that you know has that down
0: yeah why are you so interested in cinematic music in particular
1: well I think part of it is you know th- th- there's something about these right i mean it's 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 an experience that um it's it's hard to put into words uh, and that's why we have many pictures moving at 30 frames per second so um so, but, but there is something wonderful about the experience and so I, th- I think that's part of it I think a lot of us who work in movies, um, just going to f- surely enjoy. Um, but also I love, you know, since I'm a, a music theorist as well and a musician, I love how studying the relationship between music and stories can tell us something about what it means to be human, um, what the stories, what the narratives in film can tell us about how when we when we humans create music what that can can mean to us beyond just uh the notes themselves having an artistic value um and so I think it's this, this wonderful window into how tone relates to the world as as we humans see it um and so i I, I love that ability to, whether it's maybe just like decoding, <laughs> You're decoding certain uh, types of um, affective associations, um, or maybe deeper, you know, and how that somehow tone reveals things about the human experience that other types of uh, arts um, or other types of means of of communicating um, uh, don't, and so that that's something I, I really love about this work as well rather than just studying music and seeing how how does it relate to the rest of the world
0: yeah the the symphonic poem that you talked about really got me because one of the things I talk a lot about is what I call the hero horn, right It's just this one horn, and the poem is explicitly talking about that being like here's the trumpet, and here's the soldier, and that's heroic and over the top and yeah, it's like. Yeah. The you know, what do we get? It's just ghastly, but (laughs) that's not what we're gonna play on the trumpet. It's gonna sound more like revelry. Um, and that tells us something about how we are translating events and what kinds of stories we may have to tell to motivate certain events. I think personally, I don't know. Um, this is such a difficult question. My answer would always be changing, and you said that you would struggle too. Do you have a favorite soundtrack or at least a favorite movie soundtrack of the moment?
1: Yeah, of the moment, an easier one to answer, certainly.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I softened it a little bit. Yeah, that's the only way I can get an answer out of people. <laughs> oh,
1: I, I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, we we have this joke. I may have even told this to you before, Aaron. About you know what, what's your favorite Brahms symphony? What's the last one I heard? You know, because yeah. I mean, they're also fantastic. Um, and so I probably have to yeah play that same game about you know something recently. You know, the Oscar nominations came out quite recently, um, and you know it's it's, it's a good list. Um, but i have been getting into johnny greenwood more lately um listening to some of his work um you know he started off you know, of course in radiohead um but more and more you know kind of working on um uh, film music kind of you know, in, you know projects outside of uh that band and you know he never disappoints you know that may not be a, a, a glowing endorsement but you know, for example, you know the power of the dog. Um, you know, I, I listen to that music. You know, and I and I can hear. You know, I can hear Bartok. I can hear. You know, other you know kind of pre-existing composers. But boy, am I enjoying it. You know, and and the way he adds to the atmosphere of that 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 film. Um, it's just it's so good. And yet at the same time, he's not really hiding much. You know, he kind of lets it all out there. And I really admire that. It's someone who's not afraid to just, just just put it all out there rather than trying to kind of keep things up their sleeve. Um, and so, so I'm kind of on a Greenwood kick right now. Um, and going back and, you know, things like, you know, The Master um, or There Will Be Blood, you know, some of those some of those films. Um, and just to hear how much of, you know, like with Newman, but even more kind of connected into kind of more of the avant-garde side of classical music mm-hmm. and how well he can channel that um, in ways that um, seem, <laughs> I'm thinking he should be much older. <laughs> you know, he's, he, he should not be this young and <laughs> be able to do this. <laughs> so well, I, I'm seeing, you know, like a seasoned, like an Ennio Morricone or somebody like that, you know, pulling off these things. Like he's really got all of these languages down pat. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I love, you know, like 20th century modernism. Um, and so to hear it filtered through kind of his, uh, his lens. And so, yeah, I would say kind of greenwood and, and power the dog, you know, I mean, it's, it's right up there.
0: What made you decide to become a professor and how did that come about? It was late in my life and I never thought that that's what I would do. Was it pretty straightforward for you or did you kind of find it like your read says at the end of a couple of other options?
1: Oh yeah. It was definitely not an early uh, consideration, um, I think teaching, you know, there, there, there's something about teaching. It's a little bit like, you know, your question about the movies, you know, why are you interested in the movies? Well, it's, it's the movies, you know, I mean, there, there, there's something very, very powerful in sitting in a darkened theater and getting to watch, you know, something like star Wars. Um, and there's something very powerful in getting to shape people's minds. Um, and so I think just teaching on whatever level, um, has uh, a, a great appeal for for certain people, myself included. Um, but in terms of yeah, in the the, the music side of it, um, yeah, I think it was a, a sense of that. You know, being a professor allowed me to bring together lots of different interests, and and your your you know your reading kind of got to that. But there's also a sense, and maybe being a professor is a little bit more unique in this regard, um, is that you get to keep learning um you know i i love the fact that most well a lot of my job is as a you know is continuing education is continuing to grow as a as a thinker um and continuing to learn um and so that's that's one aspect of this job that is rather special and i i couldn't imagine without and so i, I think that's more the Strongest reasons that I, I went into this job, um, that I, I found out that I could, I could keep kind of expanding my mind, expanding what I know, um, and then getting a chance to turn around and you know share that with others.
0: Yeah, there there comes a point where you're watching um, Flash Gordon for work, right. and you know you, you feel like you maybe got away with something, but then you walk away talking about all these you know cool historical moments and conversations through time across different composers and things. And you share that with young folks, and and what they do with it will surprise you probably every single year, and that's what makes it a lot of fun for me anyway. Well, I really appreciate it. Scott Murphy has taught music theory at the University of Kansas since 2001. He's particularly passionate about understanding music for the movies. He's published several journal articles and book chapters on this subject. Scott, thank you so much for coming back.
1: Thanks so much, Aaron. Pleasure to be here.
0: This has been an episode of Dirt Maps, a tributary to The Real War Project, a podcast about the narrative, affective, and production politics of war cinema. You can find more episodes, interviews, conversations about war movies at The Real War Project. That's R-E-E-L, War Project, anywhere you find your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Most, most blokes are going to be playing at 10. You're on 10 here, all the way up, all the way up, yeah. all the way up. You're on 10 on your
1: guitar. Where mm.
0: can you go from there? Where? I don't know. Nowhere, exactly. What we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Uh, put it up to 11, 11. exactly. Zach and Matt are two veteran horror movie enthusiasts discussing their favorite and not-so-favorite horror films. Scary movie fans beware, or listen to Watch No Evil. News, reviews, and deep dives of the television series and film franchises you love— take a tour of the popular media world with biggs and brandon on not safe for network charles is a purple heart recipient and cinematographer Aaron is a professor and critical cultural scholar together they explore the narrative affective and production politics of war cinema on the real war project that's r-e-e-l war project you can find all of these shows wherever you find your podcasts you can find all of these shows on redwood sound labs